Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive his sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned without themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and take your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, until now, uh, in, in this story, in the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that whenever it is that Jesus spoke, Whenever he spoke, whenever he taught, whenever he preached, uh, people were like generally amazed by him, right? We've seen that. People were generally amazed by Jesus as they heard him teach. Now, people might have been confused at some points, but overall, they were just amazed by his teaching. And in chapter 1, verse 22, we saw that the crowds were astonished because he taught, because Jesus taught with divine authority, unlike anyone else, divine authority. And so here in chapter 2, though, we see a shift. Here in chapter 2, we're going to start seeing a shift in the way people respond to Jesus, in the way that they respond to his teaching and his works. For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we're actually going to encounter a group of people who are all upset about who he is and what he's saying. They're even furious at who Jesus is. They're furious at what he says. They're like this elitist group of haters that we get introduced to in Mark chapter 2. And it's not what Jesus does that gets them riled up. It's not what he does that upsets them. It's actually what he says. It's very specifically what he says. And so I want us now to unpack the first 12 verses that we just read in Mark chapter 2. I want us to camp out on three main points in this text. First, we're going to look at faith in action. Secondly, we're going to look at our greatest need. And thirdly, we're going to look at how Jesus is our source of grace. Uh, Look at that first one, faith in action. Read the first couple verses with me again in Mark chapter 2. It says, when he, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So here Jesus is at sort of his new home base of Capernaum. And word has gotten out. Word has gotten out that that people are hearing about, about his great preaching. But now the crowds, the people in Capernaum and the surrounding area are hearing about Jesus' great teaching. They're hearing about his great miracles. They're hearing about this Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplishing. And now 
people are like piling into this house. People hear that he's teaching out of a home, and they're piling in, and Jesus is preaching to them. And verse 2 says that there's so many people gathered there in this home that there's no room left for anyone else to, to sort of get in. It's like I remember in, in college, I went to see this local band do a, a house show, right, in a small house in Aliso Viejo. And once word got out locally about this band doing this house show, like it was game over, right? Like the house got so jammed, packed by the end of the night that people were spilling out onto the street. And everyone on the outside of the house is like pressing into the windows that were open, trying their best to listen in. And like every fire code was broken, right? Like that's the scene here that we have in Capernaum. That's the scene that we have in this house. Jesus is preaching in a home. Word got out. People are spilling out into the street from the house because there's so many people there. And here, now we see in verse 3, you've got a group of friends who show up with their paralyzed friend. And read what happens in verse 3 and 4. It says, they, this group, they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And so this is arguably one of the most hilarious scenes in all the gospel of Mark, right? Like these guys are on a mission. These guys are on a mission to get their friend to Jesus, and they're kind of aggressive about it, right? You got to picture it. They want to get their friend to Jesus so that he could benefit from Jesus's healing work. And so they want to get him to Jesus so badly, and they're, they're so determined to get him inside that they actually hoist him up on top of the house. They hoist him up on top of the roof, and they start dismantling, dismantling the roof from the top. And roofs back then were like thatch with layers of clay, so it wasn't entirely impossible to dismantle a roof, but it, like for sure would be a scene, right? It for sure would be a scene. You got to picture it like mid-sermon. Jesus is teaching. He's preaching. And then dirt and clay starts sprinkling down on top of people's heads. Light breaks in from the top. And then down plops a guy on a bed who can't move his legs. And he's like, hey, everyone, paralyzed guy, here to get healed, right? There's no way that Jesus can ignore this guy. There's no way that Jesus could ignore this request. And it's at this point, at this point, the crowd, they see a paralytic in front of them. The crowd sees a paralyzed man, but Jesus, he primarily sees something different. Verse 5 says, Jesus saw their faith. He saw with his eyes, he saw their faith. In other words, in these four men, Jesus sees a picture of real and genuine faith. He saw their faith. It's a faith that's grounded in who God is. It's rooted in the truth of who Jesus is, like what he preached and what he came to do. You see, some, some people, some of us, we think that faith is about taking a leap in the dark, right? But not these guys. They heard about who Jesus is. 
they heard, they heard about the miracles that he was performing in the region. Last week, Jesus healed a leopard who could not keep his mouth shut. He could not keep the good news to himself. And so maybe these guys heard through him. And it's the faith of these guys, the faith of these guys, you see in what, how Jesus responds to them, that, that their faith, it wasn't just about doctrine. Their faith wasn't just, just doctrinal. It wasn't just theological. It wasn't just conceptual or hypothetical. Their faith was active. You see that? Jesus saw their faith with his eyes. Their faith was active. Their faith inspired a way of living. It drove them to do something, to take action. You see, this is the first place in the Gospel of Mark that faith is mentioned. And when it's mentioned, it says that Jesus saw their faith because of what they did. Faith isn't just knowledge in your head, but it's active trust in your heart. It's trust that Jesus meets all of our greatest needs. Faith isn't just about what you believe in or what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. Did these men have obstacles in front of them when they tried to get their friend to Jesus? Like, yeah, absolutely they had obstacles. Was anything in the way? Yes, clearly. But they still took initiative. They pressed in. They climbed a roof. They broke through that roof and they lowered their friend. They didn't quit or they didn't walk away. They pursued Jesus at all costs. And it says that Jesus saw their faith. You see, these four men, what drove them is they knew that there was no hope for their friend apart from the man Jesus Christ. They knew. There was no hope for their friend apart from Jesus. And so they were willing to cross physical boundaries to get to Jesus. I mean, they came through the roof. They were willing to cross social boundaries to get to Jesus. Like studies show us that back in the day, it wasn't socially acceptable to tear someone's house apart, right? These guys pursued Jesus anyway. They hounded him. Because where else is there to go? The guy's paralyzed, they knew that they had no hope anywhere else apart from the God-man, Jesus Christ. What about you this morning? What about you this morning? Where is it that you place your faith? Where is it that you place your active faith? What is it that you have faith in that drives what you do, how you live, how you act? And what are the obstacles getting in between you and Jesus? Do you have enough faith in Jesus to press in through those obstacles? Do you have faith in Jesus that is more than theological, more than conceptual, but a kind of faith that stirs your heart, stirs your affections, and shapes now the way that you live? Do you have a type of active trust in Jesus that would make you relentlessly pursue him as your one and only hope? And what is it that you're willing to do if you're there? What is it that you're willing to do to bring your friends to Jesus? These guys were desperate. 
These men were desperate to get their friend to Jesus, and so they went out of their way. They carry him. They get him in front of Jesus through the roof. Like most of the converts that come to, to new and saving faith in Jesus, most of the new converts uh, like around us that come to new and saving faith in, in a church, like they were first invited and brought by someone else. After the service today, we're having baptism at Cole and Sonia's uh, home in Coto de Casa. And I first met Cole in college when our mutual friend Kara brought him to church. He was going through a hard go at life, just lost his two best friends in a matter of a few months. And, and Kara's like, we got to pray for this, fr- this friend of ours. And eventually, she, you know, week after week, she was inviting him to church, uh, her and a group of her friends. And then one, one Thursday night, he came to the college ministry. And that, that's, when I, that's when I first met Cole. And that's when we be, how we, we became friends. And now he's a, he's a member here at King's Cross. Uh, and they're hosting our baptisms uh, today uh, after service. You should ask him about his story. There's no story for him, for Cole, apart from just like the love and the prayers and just the community of people reaching out to him, inviting him in. You see, some of you have people in your life that the Holy Spirit of God is impressing on your heart right now. Someone that you know who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't love him, who doesn't worship him as God. Are you praying for them? Have you invited them to church? Have you invited them to a Sunday gathering? Have you, have you given them a Bible? We have free Bibles for you to take outside that you can give to someone like that. Do you serve them and just let them know that you're praying for them? Like people need Jesus. People need Jesus, and it is our privilege. It's our privilege as followers of Jesus to bring them to him, to press in through the obstacles and to get them to Jesus like these four men did. So these guys, they get their friend to Jesus. They lower a bed into the room as Jesus is still speaking. And the guy obviously can't move, so he's just laying there. And it's this awkward moment where Jesus' sermon gets interrupted. Everyone's staring. And the man who needs healing is just laying there on a mattress in front of everyone. And I want you to notice now how Jesus responds to this situation. It says in verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Kind of an awkward moment, right? Like this man and his friends stopped at nothing to get to Jesus. Crowds are gathered. Commotion is swirling around Jesus as people are piling in to hear him teach. And then this happens, right? Like imagine if while I was preaching, pieces of roof started to trickle down over our heads. And then this guy plops down on a bed in front of all of us. Like we would probably hit pause, right? (laughs) Like everybody would hit pause. And that's the scene here in this house. People are on the edge of their seats. They're like, what just happened? Who is this guy? What is it that this guy wants? What is it his friends hoped would happen? And when they see him on the bed, when they realize he's a paralytic, there's no question about it. They know why he's there. Everyone there knows why he's there. Everyone there knows why their friend, his friends brought him in. Everyone there knows what it is that this guy needs. And it's almost like Jesus is the only one who doesn't have a clue why he's there. 
Jesus turns to the paralytic, and instead of saying, get up and walk, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Sins? Forgiveness? Like, what, well, how did this become a cop- topic of conversation? Right? That's not why we came here. That leads us to our next point, which is our greatest need. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Now, I want you to imagine again that you're this dude, right? Imagine that this dude, this paralytic, is you. Imagine you're the paralyzed one. You're the one that four grown men had to carry up, lift you up, claw at the roof, and now you're lowered down on a mattress in front of all these people. Imagine that that is you, right? You're paralyzed, and so you can't move a single limb. You're laying there right in front of Jesus, right in front of a house full of people staring at you, and Jesus says to you, son, your sins are forgiven. Like, you'd probably be looking around like, no, that's, that's not my problem, right? You must be talking about someone else. I'm the paralyzed guy that came through the roof. Forgiveness of sins? Like, no, I have a more immediate problem going on here. And Jesus would say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Jesus says, you think you know your biggest problem. You think you know your greatest need, but you don't. When Jesus looks into the eyes of this man, his creature suffering the effects of sin and the fall on creation, when Jesus looks into the eyes of this man and he sees the tragedy and the horror of this man's paralysis, which is heartbreaking enough, but as he, as Jesus looks at this man lying there, Jesus also sees something that he loathes more than paralysis. Something that breaks his heart more than paralysis. Jesus sees the deeper issue. He sees the deeper brokenness, the greater need. And so he says, he declares, son, your sins are forgiven. That's where Jesus's primary attention goes. You see, This man's existence, his his nature, his existence, his very being has been ravaged by something more than just paralysis. His soul has been ravaged by sin. By sin. And that is the greater horror. Sin is our greatest need. the, The problem of sin defines our greatest need. That is the greatest horror. This man's sin had separated him from God, his maker. (laughs) That, by the way, is the most heartbreaking and gut-wrenching thing for any person, to live apart from God because we were made to live with him and for him forever. You and I, we were made to to be in a loving relationship with God, our maker, and sin has separated us from him. You see, the scriptures tell us that God is holy. He's holy. That means he's so perfect. He's so other than us. He exists on a whole nother plane. He's not like the better version of us. He's an entirely different, entirely transcendent being. And Scripture tells us that God is so holy, He's so perfect, that He dwells in unapproachable light. 
You can't approach a God like that. You can't approach a God like that. If you were to stand before a God like that, like your skin would just melt off. He, he lives, he dwells in unapproachable light. Sinners cannot stand in the presence of a God like that any more than we can stand on the surface of the sun. One of the most fundamental questions of the Christian life is where do you stand before a holy, great, and sovereign God like that? One of the most fundamental questions. You see, Jesus saw this man, and he saw that this man, even though he was paralyzed, this man stood separated from God in his sin. This man can't physically walk, but his soul is marching towards damnation, toward an eternity in judgment away from God. Every worldview, every religion, every worldview has to give an account for what's wrong with the world. And scripture tells us that that problem is sin. And Jesus came to fix it. So when Jesus tells this man, son, your sins are forgiven, he's not missing the point. He's actually drilling down to the deeper point. He's drilling down to the foundation. It's like he's saying, look, if you only want physical healing, then you're not thinking deep enough. If you only want to walk again, you're not thinking forever enough. You don't know the real depths of your deepest longings. You don't know the real depths of your deepest needs, the deepest longings of the human heart, what you were made for, who you were made for. This guy in his paralysis, this guy probably hated his life. Like he probably thought, if only I could walk again. If only I could walk again. If only my circumstances were different, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll never complain. But whenever you say, if only I had, and then whatever you say after that, whatever condition, whatever circumstance, whatever relationship, whatever status, whenever you say, if only I had blank, then I'd be safe. Then I'd be okay. Then I'd feel secure. Then I'd be satisfied. Whatever you say on the other side of, if only I had, whatever you say next, that is your functional savior. That is your functional savior. And every other Savior, other than Jesus Christ, is a false Savior. Every condition that we think we would have, every circumstance that we want change, any relationship that we think with another human that we think will make us complete, any status that we achieve before men that we yearn for and long for, those saviors will always leave us wanting. They will never satisfy. You see, every one of us has a get up and walk that we want to hear. Every one of us has a get up and walk that we want. A temporal need that threatens to distract us from really our greatest need, our deepest need. And look, the scriptures don't tell us to ignore those desires. That doesn't tell us to ignore those desires and those wants. In fact, we still need to bring those to God in prayer and ask him to either provide for us immediately and we can praise him when he does or to give us strength to endure in our lack of it. But Jesus here, he reminds us that our greatest need, 
our deepest need, the need that matters most is forgiveness for our sin. It's not walking on two legs for this guy. Like a sinner with two legs can probably cause a lot more damage to himself and others, right? If you give him two legs. But if you give him a new identity, then that's true life. A new identity in Jesus Christ. That's satisfying. That's true life. Sinclair Ferguson makes a comment on, on this passage. He says, Here, Mark unveils what lies at the heart of the gospel. This is what lies at the heart of the good news, that men need forgiveness. Jesus gives it. To the degree to which you see your own need of forgiveness is the measure of how clearly you understand the gospel. What do you think this Christianity thing is about? What do you think the gospel is? Why do you think we call it good news? You can't miss this point. Like this is the big E on the I chart, right? You can't miss this point. The degree to which you see your own need of forgiveness is the measure of how clearly you understand the gospel. Do you know your need for forgiveness this morning? Some of you, some of you, you, you don't have a sense of your need. Some of you need to know the reality of your sin. You don't know that sin is a big deal. And what you need is to be shocked by Jesus' words like this, that your greatest need is forgiveness of sins. Some of you are acutely aware of your sin and your guilt before God. If you're sensing that, you need to know that's a gift from God because it draws you to the cross of Jesus. That is a gift from God to make you aware of your need for His grace. You can only enjoy the beauty and the truth and the goodness and the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You can only enjoy that if you understand first your need for it. This leads us to our next point, how Jesus is our source of grace. Jesus is about to have a bit of a showdown here now with some of the religious elite of his day. And this will be the first of many showdowns as he has with them, that he has with them. Jesus tells the paralytic, he says to him, your sins are forgiven, which is a pretty big claim, right? Pretty good, big claim. Like other religions don't say things like your sins are forgiven. They say if you do these rituals, if you do these routines, if you pay God back, you can sort of earn your way in. Uh, but Jesus does something different. He says, I forgive you. And what we see is that the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus brings through the forgiveness of sin, the kingdom that Jesus brings is advancing in places that no one thought it would. You see, they thought that Jesus' kingdom would, would be, be rushed in in like a military manner, right? Or in a political manner. But Jesus shows that, no, the kingdom that he brings goes places that no one thought it would to the heart and the core of who we are. His kingdom addresses the problem of sin. And when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, like that, to this crowd, especially to the, to the, to the scribes, that was scandalous. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, that was scandalous, especially to the scribes. You see, the scribes that were present, they were these guys that kind of saw themselves as the keepers of what was acceptable in Jewish life. 
They had the final say. They were sort of like the religious police of the day. This is why they questioned him in verses 6 and 7 when it says, read it with me. Now some of the scribes were sitting there right after Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He's blaspheming against God because who can forgive sins but God alone? So why do these guys, why do these theologians respond like this? It's because when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, that was a huge red flag to them because only God alone could forgive sin. To claim that you could forgive sin was to rob God of his glory because only God could forgive sin. And you know what? They're right. (laughs) They're right. Only God can forgive sin. Why can only God forgive? Because God is always the most offended party when we sin. No matter how horizontal our sin seems, with other people, the vertical aspect always carries the most weight. We read about that in Psalm 51, where that David, King David, he screwed up royally, pun intended, right? He screwed up royally, King David did. Finally confess, and he's finally confessing in Psalm 51, he's confessing to God for sleeping with a woman who was married to one of his most faithful soldiers. And then to try and cover it up, David got this soldier murdered to sort of cover up his own sin. And so King David, at this point, he's a total mess. He broke five commandments in one chapter of the Bible. And Psalm 51 is his prayer of confession to the Lord. And I want you to read what he prays in verse 4 of Psalm 51. He says, against you, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, at this point in his life, it's hard to find someone that David didn't sin against. It's hard to find someone that David did not sin against in his sphere of influence. He left a lot of wounded people in the wake of his sin, but the one that he offended the most is the one who gave him life. You see, God is always the most offended party whenever we sin because he made us. He made you. And so when you put your mind, your body, your soul where it doesn't belong, where God doesn't intend for it to go, then that's a sin against him. All sin is an attempt to tell God, no, not your throne, but mine. And so Jesus is claiming here to be the one who can forgive all sin. He's claiming to be God. And so the scribes are upset about this, thinking in their hearts, who does this guy think he is? And Jesus, they're thinking in their hearts, who does this guy think he is? And and Jesus responds, hey, I heard that. (laughs) Read verse 8. It says, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? They're thinking this to themselves, and Jesus is like, hey, I heard that. It's kind of an awkward moment for them, right? What we see is that the power and authority of Jesus is reaching into new places. In this case, he's reading their hearts. Elsewhere, the scriptures tells us that all of life flows from the heart. 
The heart is the core. When the scriptures use that word heart, it's talking about the core of who you are. It's where your thoughts, your desires, your motives, it's where they live. And so what Jesus does is he exposes and he confronts the hearts of these scribes. And read on in verse 9. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, you could argue that since only God can forgive sins, that it might be easier to say, rise up, grab your bed, and walk. But that's not what Jesus is getting at in asking this question. That's not what Jesus is after. You see, anyone can claim to forgive sins, and you'd never know if they're really forgiven, right? Anyone can make that claim, and you'd never know if they really have that power. Like, anyone can claim your sins are forgiven, and you could be like, thanks, and he'd say, don't mention it, right? You have no way to, like, back that up or prove it. But it's harder, practically speaking, to tell a paralytic to walk. You see, you couldn't tell Jesus to prove that this man's sins were really forgiven, but you could tell Jesus to prove that this man can walk. And in that sense, it's harder to tell the man to walk. And look what happens in verse 10. Jesus continues talking. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he, the paralytic, rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The man, Jesus, Jesus speaks, and this man, he, he rose. He rose. And then he went out in front of them. And the people are amazed. They start to glorify God. They say, I can't believe my eyes. I've never seen anything like this. Who's like Jesus? No one. No one's like him. Who has the ability to reach into the depths of our sin and make us new? Nobody. And it's in this miracle, in healing the paralytic, that we see that physical healing and spiritual healing are not worlds apart, but that Jesus makes all things brand new. New bodies, new limbs, new mission, new identities, and new life. New life. That's what walking in the ways of Jesus is about. It's about walking in new life. In a little bit, when we go go to to Cole and Sonia's house for baptisms, we're gonna we're gonna we know we're gonna immerse uh, a few people in water and we're gonna raise them up. And one of the things that we say is is uh, when we bring them down is that. Um, you're united with Christ in his death, and you're raised to walk now in newness of life. That's what baptism is a picture of, is a picture of somebody who, because of Jesus' effect on them, because he's given them a new identity, he's risen them, he's resurrected them, that you're dying to your old self, and now you're rising to walk in newness of life. Jesus gives us new identities. He gives us a new 
life. And what we see in this passage is that the miracle of healing the paralytic, this miracle had a message. This miracle had a message. It was confirmation to everyone who was present that Jesus forgives sins. God placed this story here in the Gospel of Mark to show us that Jesus has the power to do what he came to do. This shows us that Jesus has the power in himself to do what he came to do. He came with all the authority of God to meet the greatest need of our souls. And at this point, the scribes, they have it out for Jesus. They're upset. The people are amazed, but the scribes have it out for him. And this would be the first step in their move towards eventually getting him to the cross. This is that first domino that eventually leads with Jesus on a cross in our place for our sins. You see, at the end of this scene, in Mark chapter 2, first 12 verses, at the end of this scene, the paralytic, he's able to move his legs again. But Jesus now, because of that, is further along down the road to having his own legs nailed to the cross. Maybe this morning, you're a person of faith. But your faith is in this place where it's more kind of conceptual rather than practical. And this text reminds us that faith is more than what you believe, but it's what you do with what you believe. And maybe you're here and you're saying like, yes, there are obstacles and there is suffering in my life, but this text reminds you that your deepest problem is actually inside of you, not outside of you. And for that, we have Jesus. You see, the big miracle in this passage is not that the paralytic could walk again, but that his sins were forgiven. That is the best part. That is the greatest part. And we see that Jesus is our source of grace. He's the source of the grace we need for our greatest need. And so now, as we worship in song and share in communion, we get to respond as the people did at the end of this passage with awe, with amazement of the one who forgives sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.